Welcome to A Beggar Who Found Bread. I'm your host, a wandering beggar named Brad who found bread, the bread of life, the Messiah, Yeshua of Nazareth, Christ Jesus. I hope to reveal this bread to others that they may get their affairs in order. This episode, Money Talks. Credit Rock and Roll Hall of Famers ACDC for the title to this episode. And I think I used one of their song titles in the past also, but I'm not 100% on that point. This is, after all, the 205th episode of this podcast. What? I know, right? So it's possible. But shout out to all of you, and I appreciate those who listen, who like, who subscribe, and do all the things, rate, review, and share. Thank you for all of that. And ACDC's original vocalist, Bon Scott, he passed away in 1980 of alcohol poisoning. The band considered just hanging it up at that point, but they were encouraged by Scott's family to continue and thus began the search for a new singer. Brian Johnson, who had been the vocalist for the English band Geordie for years, had all but decided to drop the mic forever when he received a strange phone call. It was a woman with a thick accent who called asking to speak with Johnson. He told her it was him, and she told him he was to attend a tryout for a band. She did not tell him what band, just to show up for an audition. And she only referred to herself as Olga from Volga. He said it felt like a spy movie. He went and was shocked when it turned out to be the Australian rockers ACDC looking for a new singer. They asked him what song he wanted to perform. And to their surprise, he chose a song by Ike and Tina Turner. And they were actually happy to hear that. Mostly because all the others who auditioned only wanted to sing Smoke on the Water. Everyone else who auditioned selected that Deep Purple classic. So they were kind of relieved. He didn't choose that song. And the band ended up having to quickly learn the song Johnson selected, which he felt like put him at an advantage. Seemed to work in his favor because Brian Johnson has been the band frontman ever since. And the first album recorded with Johnson on lead vocals was Back in Black, which appears to be a reference to the band's return, being back, back in action, while still mourning the loss of their former singer, Bon Scott, Back in Black. It's also the band's all-time greatest selling album, over 50 million copies sold, which is number two album sales all time. Crikey, it's not about the music, it's about the message. Money talks. In this episode, we're going to take a look into more of Yeshua's teachings and a couple of parables which I believe to a degree have been misunderstood and quite honestly misused. With only a couple of exceptions this season, we've been focusing on the teachings of the Master, Yeshua the Messiah. And for me, the studies and delving into his teachings with fresh eyes has really been reinvigorating to my faith. Because when I consider 
I've been walking in the faith as a Christian, a follower of the Messiah, for over 30 years now. And when I ponder how little of that time has been spent actually studying his teachings, the teachings of the master, it's embarrassing, to be honest. I have called him my Lord, my master, and my savior for decades, and yet I really didn't seek to understand and follow his teachings as much as I did others in the scriptures, of course, but uh, like primarily the Apostle Paul, because that is a great focus of the evangelical church is Paul's teachings. The feedback that I've received about this resurgence of attention on Yeshua's words and the example he set has been reassuring. Um, it's, it, it's been nice to hear, but to be totally honest, it's been unnecessary. And not that I don't like feedback, positive or constructive. It is good to know that others are being compelled and drawn to his teachings. But regardless of the feedback, I know this is where I need to be. And I believe it is where the body of Messiah should be focused as well. So with all that said, let's look at Luke chapter 16. It's been highlighted by many of the prosperity preachers that Yeshua spoke about money even more than heaven. And that's a valid statement. It's accurate. But what did he say about money? Certainly not what the motivational money ministers would have you think. Where we are picking up, the master has been teaching with a series of parables, and he just completed the parable of the prodigal son, which takes us here, Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. Now, Yeshua was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a household manager, and this manager was accused of squandering his belongings. So he called the manager and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I'm put out of management, others will welcome me into their homes. So he called in each one of his master's debtors, and he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, One hundred units of olive oil. The manager said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, Now, how much do you owe? He said, A hundred units of wheat. The manager said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. Now the master praised the crooked manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are smarter when dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. I say to you, make friends for yourselves from the wealth of the world, so when it runs out, they will welcome you into eternal shelters. Now this parable seems a little bit confusing and even cryptic in some ways, and it leaves, it leaves it to be one of the least taught lessons of Yeshua, this particular parable. And the exception being when the money preachers 
who run with an interpretation which leads people to pursue financial gain. That's the exception to uh, the, the amount of teaching that, that gets done on this parable. So the way, the way this is worded, it does give the appearance of some inconsistencies with the rest of Scripture. So when we see that, if something is inconsistent with the rest of Scripture, we need to dig deeper and we need to look at what, what are definitions, what are transla- with the translations, and what, what's really being said here. So I want to look at a few supporting texts. First, from some wisdom from King Solomon, from Ecclesiastes. He wrote, A feast is made for laughter and wine makes life glad. But money is the answer for everything. And yes, that of course is another favorite of the prosperity pushers, but I believe the parable we just read, spoken by Yeshua, actually brings the deeper truth and the true meaning of what Solomon meant in that writing. Money is the answer for everything. Solomon also said, A lover of money never has enough money, and a lover of wealth is never satisfied with his income. This, too, is futile. In his first letter to Timothy, the Apostle Paul wrote that the love of money is the root of all evil. The Master, Yeshua, gave strong warnings about the wealth of this world, And right after this parable in Luke 16, he gave his warning that you cannot love Hashem and money. You cannot love God and money. So let's look over this parable and get get to what I believe is the proper interpretation. And I find it interesting that Yeshua did not explain this one as he did with some of the others. And I think this means that it's actually simpler than we have made it. So what do we have in this parable? There's a rich man who has learned, the man who has supposed to have been managing his accounts, has been misappropriating funds. We don't have many other details. Now, the fact that he's being terminated from his job, and I would say more importantly, the fact that Yeshua calls that manager crooked or dishonest, that lets us know he has been corrupt in his dealings. The manager is told to turn in his accounting ledgers, basically. So this manager says to himself, I've got no marketable skills, so I can't work for a living, and I'm not going to go beg on the streets. Now, the the Hebrew term for one who begs is schnorrer, which means to sponge off of others. So he doesn't want to do that. He's ashamed. He would be ashamed to do that. So he goes to those who are indebted to his master, and he negotiates on their behalf. The amounts owed are, are important, and they are significant amounts owed. The 100 units of olive oil equates to 800 gallons. That's the yield of 150 olive trees, roughly the equivalent of three years' wages. That's what was owed by the first guy. The 100 units of wheat 
is about 1,000 bushels of wheat. 1,000 bushels, which is the harvest of about 100 acres. And that is approximately seven to eight years wages. So these are massive debts for individuals to have. This is personal debt, right? And the rich man in this parable, he's... He's kind of like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, like modern day billionaire kind of guy. Now, in the first century, what would happen was people would get so deep in debt that they couldn't get out from under it. And thus, eventually, they would become indentured servants to the master, to whomever they were indebted. What the manager did was relieve some of the burden of debt which would bring a sense of relief and help to the debtors. It would help them see the light at the end of the tunnel. So instead of looking at the amount they owed, like, I'm never getting out from under this. I don't even know why I try. Now, making those minimum payments like so many do with credit cards. Well, they now, instead of having that overwhelming feeling, they now would have a light of hope. And they would be more intentional about paying off the debt. They could see their way out of it. This would in turn help the rich man, the master, as those who owed him would be more aggressive in repaying their debts to him. Through his shrewdness, the manager, who was still losing his job, would be appreciated by those whose debts he reduced And they would gladly provide him room and board for advocating and negotiating on their behalf. So this has almost a feel of Robin Hood to it. It's okay to rob from the rich and give to the poor, so to speak. Now, is that what Yeshua is endorsing here? Is he saying it's okay to take from really rich people because they have way more than they need? I'm going to go with a hard no on that. The last two verses of this parable, I believe, illuminate the point of the parable. Now, the master praised the crooked manager because he had acted shrewdly, for the sons of this age are smarter when dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. I say to you, Make friends for yourselves from the wealth of the world, so when it runs out, they will welcome you into eternal shelters. The master in the parable, the rich master, he praised the dishonest, crooked manager because he acted shrewdly in how he negotiated for the debtors. The manager's shrewdness actually defrauded the rich man out of more of his money, what was rightly his. But it was going to benefit the manager for his situation, his own personal situation. And there would be a short-term positive for the rich master who would see an increase in payment towards what he was owed. Yeshua then says, The sons of this age are smarter when dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. 
So the people of the world, so to speak, are a little smarter and more savvy with with uh, negotiations and with the handling of uh, of money and dealing with the, and dealing with their own people. Now, the Master Yeshua has told us to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. So being savvy and even shrewd is a good trait, according to Yeshua. Does this mean he wants us to be deceptive and to behave corruptly and to defraud the rich? May it never be. This is not an endorsement of that crooked manager's actions. Verse 9 really brings the fullness of Yeshua's point here. He's making a spiritual, eternal reference through this parable. Make friends for yourselves from the wealth of the world. So when it runs out, they will welcome you into the eternal shelters. This almost seems to say, get as rich as you possibly can so you'll have lots of friends. No. Nope. Uh Uh-uh. Not even close. In this parable, the rich master is not a picture of the father, Hashem, as in so many other of Yeshua's teachings. It is a reference to the wealth of this world. The Jewish understanding would be that it is unrighteous wealth. And the friends made with the wealth in this parable to whom Yeshua refers, the friends that we are to make with the wealth of this world, they are the poor, the needy. Messiah has made it clear that we are not to love or pursue the wealth of this world. We are not of this world. We're not to pursue or love money, the wealth of this world. Now, it is necessary to have the currency of this present world to meet obligations and to be able to trade for provisions. Adonai provides for us through our vocations, our employment, allowing us to gain financial increase, meeting our daily needs. The nutshelling of this parable is that we should use the wealth of this world to lessen the burdens of others. It's all about charitable giving. Tzedakah. Righteousness through charitable giving. Using the wealth of this world, which we obtain through our work, to meet the needs of the poor, the needy, the widow, and the orphan. And this will cause these ones, the friends we have made, using the wealth of this world... This will cause them to plead to the Father on our behalf that we would have eternal shelters, meaning how we treat the needy has a direct connection to our portion in the coming kingdom. Loving our neighbors as we love ourselves, which Yeshua and the Apostle Paul have both said fulfills the Torah. I believe the the parable at the end of this chapter 
actually reinforces this interpretation of the one about the crooked manager. I'm going to read right now how Yeshua followed up this parable. We're going to pick up uh, in verse 10 here. And this also strengthens the interpretation that I just shared. In verse 10, the master says, One who is faithful in the smallest matters is also faithful in much. And the one unjust in the smallest matters will likewise be unjust in much. So then, if you cannot be trusted with unjust wealth, who will trust you with true wealth? Now, if you have not been trustworthy with, that, with what belongs to another, who will give you anything of your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will stick by one and look down on the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and sneering at Yeshua. But he said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves before the people, but God knows your hearts. For what is prized among men is detestable in God's sight. I believe the master Yeshua is driving his point home in what he just said there. The Pharisees were focused on obtaining unjust or unrighteous money. Now, this doesn't mean it was earned through sinful or illegal ways. It is simply a reference to the wealth of this world. Unjust or unrighteous money is equivalent to the wealth of this world. So, Let's get to the follow-up parable, which, again, I believe solidifies my interpretation of the first. Starting at verse 19. Now, there was a rich man dressed in purple and fine linen, living, uh, living it up in luxury every day. But a poor man named Lazarus had been laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming to lick his sores. It happened that the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Then the rich man also died and was buried. And from Sheol, as he was in torment, he raised his eyes and he sees Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus so he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, because I'm suffering torment in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your life you received your good things, even as Lazarus received the bad things. But now he is comforted. He is comforted here, and you are tormented. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm is firmly set, so that those who want to cross over to you cannot, nor can those from there cross over to us. Then the rich man said, I beg you then, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers to warn, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. 
But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But Abraham said, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This parable also has a simple face value meaning. And I know that it is used by many, myself included, to try to describe what the afterlife looks like before the resurrection, final judgment, and the coming kingdom. Paradise and Sheol, or Abraham's bosom, or at Abraham's side, as this translation said, and then Sheol, the place of the dead. Yeshua is the one making the description in this parable, so I don't question the imagery at all. But that's not the point he's making with this parable. That's not the focal point. That's not the application for the parable. It goes hand in hand with the previous one, and it speaks to how we treat the poor, what we do with the wealth of this world. There is a nameless rich man living it up on the wealth he has amassed, while the poor man, Lazarus, begs at his gate. The rich man ignores him. Now, the poor man, who does have a name, his name is Lazarus, and Lazarus actually comes from the Hebrew name Eleazar, which is translated as, God is my help. Yeshua used that specific name for a reason. He is building on the responsibility to care for the poor and needy. We see Lazarus sits at the gate of the rich man, hoping just to eat the crumbs from the guy's table. And there were dogs licking Lazarus's sores. Now, when dogs do this for each other, and even for other species of animals, it is to show the wounded they are now part of the dog's pack. It's a way of welcoming them into the pack. So here's this poor man, Lazarus, whose state and condition is such that dogs are accepting him into their pack. And the rich man continues living it up as though he is oblivious to this struggling human at his gate. Now, the accountability the rich man faces reveals, I believe, that he was not unaware of Lazarus' situation. Now, we don't know how the rich man got rich, nor do we know how Lazarus, Eleazar, became poor. Since the master didn't include that information in this parable, I think we can assume that those matters are insignificant or irrelevant. What we have is someone who has far beyond his basic needs met, unwilling to help one who has no food or shelter, and I'd imagine that his clothes were tattered and disheveled as well. Lazarus, Eleazar, who did, who did without in this world, is ushered to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom, paradise, when his body in this present world, physically expires. He is ushered there. The rich man finds himself in the flames of Sheol, the place of the dead. And this 
really is about as cut and dry as it can get. Then, from Sheol, the rich man calls out to Abraham, asking that Lazarus could just dip his finger in some cool water and place it on his tongue for some relief. And Abraham lets the rich man know, that ain't happening. The rich man then begs Abraham to send Lazarus to his family to warn them, including his five brothers, so that they would repent. He supposes if someone who has been raised from the dead could share this information, his brothers may repent and use their wealth towards building the kingdom of Hashem instead of building their own kingdom. But Abraham responded to the rich man's request in verse 29. But Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But Abraham said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Abraham tells this rich guy, the writings of Moses, which is the Torah, and the words of the prophets are enough. There is enough in there for people to live a life which leads to paradise and a portion in the coming kingdom. And I say that knowing, as we should all know, that the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, the Tanakh, or Old Testament writings, all point to the Messiah, Yeshua of Nazareth. It's all in there. The one who was raised from the dead, Yeshua. That's where they all point to. And still today, even with the resurrected king testifying of what Moses and the prophets said, there are those who do not believe and repent. Even as was said in that parable, When we read that Yeshua said, the greatest command is to love Adonai Elohim, the Lord our God, with all our heart, soul, and might, and to love our neighbors as ourselves is like it, and that all of the Torah and prophets hang from these two commands. He is telling us the Torah and the prophets teach us how to love Adonai Elohim with all our heart, soul, and might, and how to love our neighbors. It's in there. You have the Torah and the prophets. This man was told his family had the Torah and the prophets. They had enough information there. Caring for the poor, needy, widow, and orphan is top priority to the Holy One, blessed be he. If it is his priority, It should be our priority. And I think a good challenge for us would be when we see someone in obvious need, whatever that is, financial, physical, emotional, whatever whatever their need is, they have a need for help, regardless of how they got to that place, that we would just say to ourselves in our minds, if not in our lips, as we're driving or as we're walking, wherever we are, just say to ourselves in our minds, or again, speak it out loud. There's Lazarus, Eleazar. God is my help. 
Did God put him in my path for a reason? I'll speak for myself here. I know I can do more than I currently do. I have Moses, the prophets, and even the one raised from the dead, all testifying the same thing. Seek justice, love, mercy, faithfulness, walking humbly with our God. They're all saying the same thing. I have them all. I can do more. Hashem has done the work. He provides the means. He paid the price. He empowers to accomplish the tasks. And I am out of excuses. Father, have mercy on me, a sinner. Strengthen me. Wake me up to do according to your will, your word. I hope that this has challenged you and blessed you. And I I encourage you, please study to show yourself approved of God. There is a lost and dying world, desperate and starving. And we have the bread they need, the bread of life, Yeshua the Messiah. Let's go out and give them heaven. Until next time, may the grace, the master Yeshua the Messiah, found in the eyes of Hashem, be upon you and all your household. And may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, reign in your hearts and minds in the Messiah Yeshua. Grace and peace. Chain Shalom.